This is Talk RL Podcast. All reinforcement learning, all the time. Interviews with brilliant folks from across the world of RL. I'm your host, Robin Chohan. Dananjar Hafner is a PhD student at the University of Toronto, a student researcher at Google Brain and the Vector Institute, and holds a Master's of Research from University College London. Dananjar, thanks so much for speaking with me. Hi, Robin. Thanks a lot. So how do you describe your area of focus? Yeah, I work in um, broadly in artificial intelligence, and that's really where the motivation for me comes from. Not so much building better applications, um, but more really understanding the concepts behind uh, intelligent thinking. And I think machine learning actually gives us uh, pretty powerful tools that we can use to study at least some of these questions that we couldn't study directly on a person or, um, or in the brain because it's just so hard to make measurements. Um, so that motivation led me uh, to machine learning and then more specifically to reinforcement learning. Um, so a lot of my work is in reinforcement learning, in generative modeling, um, learning world models, and exploration. Can you share with us what your PhD advisors focus on? Sure. So my main advisor is Jimmy Barr, and um, I'm also advised by Jeffrey Hinton. And they both focus on, um, on a lot of questions around deep neural networks. So about architectures of deep neural networks, about optimization, um, and things you can do with it. So in some sense, um, it's great to have an advisor like that, uh, or, or two advisors like that, because they have um, quite broad interests and broad knowledge as well. So um, I can basically do whatever I want, and I get good feedback and uh, good advice on those topics. So the first paper uh, we're going to discuss today, you're a contributing author to, uh, A Deep Learning Framework for Neuroscience by Richards et al. So I really don't know anything about neuroscience. My apologies in advance as I try to follow along with this. But what is the main idea here? The reason I think uh, this is a good paper to start off with is that it really gives a general framework for us to think about understanding the brain and what it can do uh, in connection to machine learning. The general idea is that you know, neuroscience has existed for a really long time and there's lots of data around and there are also some theories, but it's almost at the point where um, there's, there are lots of small kind of data sets and measurements that have been made, um, but we're really, for one, we're limited by the types of experiments we can run on real um, on real subjects, just because it's so hard to look into the brain, basically, make measurements. There's a skull, and then um, there's so much going on, it's really hard to kind of target specific, uh, let's say, neurons that you would want to measure. And so um, that's one thing. And the other thing is that there are some kind of general themes missing. Um, and of course, there are there are some ideas of like general theories that put together all these experimental uh, results, but it seems like um, we need some more guiding principles to really make sense of all of that data and get some frameworks that we can think uh, within. And 
so the idea of this paper is that we kind of have a similar situation in deep learning where we have all these crazy architectures and uh, different loss functions that you can optimize and, and different ways to optimize these loss functions. And so this has served us really well in the deep learning community. There's a loss function, there's a way to optimize this loss function, and then there's an architectural model. Um, so to optimize this function. And so in this paper, we propose this framework um, as a way to um, make sense of data in neuroscience. So how can we draw connections between the two disciplines here? So this paper talks about these three components, uh, objective functions, which I gather are equivalent to loss functions, um, the learning rules, and, and architectures. Can you, can you say just a, a brief a little bit about these three things and, and maybe uh, contrast how they work in, in neuroscience and, and how we define them in machine learning? So I'm very much on the machine learning side. Um, and I'm, I'm really interested in neuroscience, um, but I can speak much better for the machine learning side of things here. And so, for example... Um, let's say you just train, you know, some deep neural network on some image classification task. And so there's some data, which often you don't have control over. Um, and then there is an architecture that would be um, how many layers you use in your, in your neural network, whether you use any skip connections, what activation function you want to use, and so on. And then there's a loss function, which in the case of supervised learning, it's quite simple. It's just maximize the probability of your supervised outputs that you want the network to predict. Um, but that could be much more complicated in other scenarios. For example, in unsupervised learning, um, it's really a field that's about trying to find out what is a good loss function if you don't know exactly what you want the model um, to output precisely. So. Um, that's the second component. We have the architectures, we have the loss functions. Um, and then, once you have these two, you've defined an optimization problem. So, find the parameters in this model or in this architecture to optimize this objective um, given some data. And, and then you have to optimize it. So, how do you actually find the right parameters? And in machine learning, we call that an optimizer. Um, like stochastic gradient descent or atom and so on. But uh, in neuroscience, that would be a learning rule where you write down the dynamics of how do you actually, um, how do the weights change from one step to the next or maybe even continuously over time to um, make progress on finding better parameters that maximize the loss function. So you said unsupervised learning is a lot about figuring out what the loss should be, um, and that's obviously still an open question. But would you do you feel like in general in machine learning we kind of have these three things figured out to some degree? That's a really good question. I think we have we have really good ways to optimize our networks. So I think the learning rule part is figured out to 
to at least a level where you can do a lot of things with it. And it's often not the bottleneck anymore. Of course, there are a lot of people working on developing better optimizers. And actually, uh, Jimmy works a lot on that as well. And, and it's, it's like an interesting field because when you come up with a better optimizer, then you've made the lives of thousands of people easier because now they can all just switch over to that optimizer and they will get better results with their machine learning projects. Um, and that's, that's really the power that comes from a logical framework like this. So um, the idea is if we find good building blocks that we can separate a project, uh, a problem into, then people can work on them to some extent uh, independently of the other building blocks. So I, if I want to solve some, if I want to find a better architecture uh, for a specific task, I don't have to also do research on finding a better optimizer at the same time or on finding a better objective function at the same time. Um, so to answer your question, I think we're, we're in a decent position in terms of the learning rules. I think we're also in a decent position in terms of the architectures, even though um, it's probably not as, as clear yet, just because it's such a giant design space of how can you build a neural network. Um, one thing we figured out is that um, we, have a, we have a kind of tool bank of different neural modules that you can just stack together. And that's a really, um, really powerful way of thinking about building an architecture. Right, you can have dense layers, fully connected layers, and convolutional layers, and attention layers, and recurrent layers, and so on. You put them all together, and they kind of work in any order, more or less. So I think we'll still, we can still design much better architectures, especially, um, especially for precise tasks. So one. One big benefit of deep learning is that it kind of applies to everything. Uh, whatever your prediction problem is, you can use deep learning and you can probably do a pretty good job at making predictions. But especially when there is very little data, then we have to be more careful about what architecture we use. And so you, you basically have to build priors about the data into the architecture. And I think we can still do a much better job there. Um, for one, we can, for, for very specific problems, we can find better priors. And then an example here is that for convolutions work well for, for images. Um, but then there's still a lot of knowledge that we intuitively have about natural images that are not captured by convolutional network. Um, so for example, there are objects in the world. And so you know, objects tend to be consistent in time, right? They move slowly. Uh, it's like some piece of information in my sensory input that is correlated in space and time. And, and it can move in time or it can move in space. And we don't really put these priors into our networks yet. And that's what uh, Jeff has been working on for a really long time with the capsules networks. So, um, so there's a spectrum of how precise 
you want to tailor something to a task, get really good results on one task, but then uh, lose some generality. And I think object priors are uh, general enough that they will be useful for a lot of things. And there are probably some other priors that we haven't really incorporated well into our architectures yet, like, um, like smoothness, for example. So, and, and there's lots of interesting work on, uh, on Lipschitz neural networks and so on. So, so I think there, there's a very active development on the architecture side. And then to come to the last component of objectives, I think, I think that's where we have to do the most, uh, the most work and where we're kind of really early in, in the process. And so that's what I think is probably the biggest bottleneck of machine learning and also of understanding, in understanding intelligent systems better. Finding the right objective functions. Um, as I said, that's basically, to me, that's basically what unsupervised learning means as a field at the moment, because some people say, well, it's not really, you know, a rigorous, um, clearly defined task that you're trying to solve. But to me, that's really the beauty of it. We don't know yet what is the right mathematical objective that you want to optimize and we have to search for it. Um, and if you find better objective functions, you can learn better representations, you can uh, describe systems better, and becomes especially interesting, not just if you're trying to learn representations, but in the reinforcement learning setting, where you're not just doing perception, but you're also interacting with the world. And I think it's not at all clear yet what our agents should optimize for if there are no rewards around. That's super interesting. And I've always thought of the deep learning architectures as very well factored. As you say, we can use, we have all these libraries of layers that we can just drop in. Uh, but you help me appreciate the extent to which um, the other components are, are also well factored. Uh, which is, I think, a great insight. So for the brain, do we have any idea if we should expect to find a single type of objective function and like a single learning rule? Or could we imagine there could be many different types of objective functions and learning rules in different parts of the brain? Is that still a completely open question? That's, that's a really good question. Um, the theoretical answer is that it doesn't really matter. So yes, you, for any system, any system that you can observe, you can, there exists theoretically exactly one objective function that describes all the behavior of that system. Um, actually, not quite true. It describes all the behavior of that system that can be described through an objective function. So in the paper, we talk a bit about this. And it's basically the idea of um, the fundamental theorem of vector calculus or the Helmholtz decomposition. And so the idea is the following. Let's say you're describing a system. Could be, um, it could be a neural network where the weight, weights change over time in some gigantic space of all the possible combinations or configurations of the weight, weight vector. Um, or it could be... Um, it could be a very simple system like a thermostat that just has a sensor and then controls the, the heating unit. Um, or it could be 
even more complex than a neural neural network or deep neural network, um, like a system like the brain. And so uh, all these systems you can view from like a dynamical systems perspective. There's some state space, and every point in that space describes um, possible configuration of the system. And at the current time, it's at one point, and then it kind of moves around over time as the brain is doing its computing or as the thermostat is uh, reading new temperature values and storing some new internal state uh, about them, like a moving average maybe. Um, and as the weights of our deep neural networks change with every optimization step, they also move around in, in the state space. And so when you, when you describe a system like from this angle, you can view it as a vector field in the state space. Right? If, you, if your state description is complete, then from every state there is a direction in which you go to get to the next state. Right? And if you include the, um, if you couple that with an external system, you freely kind of, um, then you really have a like a closed state. Um, like a closed system where everything is is captured by your description and and basically um, everything becomes more or less predictable. And for every point in the configuration space, there there's a direction and that gives you the next point in configuration space. And so when you describe system systems like this, um, you can actually you, you get a, a vector field. Every point in state space gives a direction. That's that's the vector field. And you can decompose it in, in two simpler vector fields. And that works in any case, um, except for some maybe degeneracies that are just of theoretical interest. Um, and you can, you can decompose it into one part that is optimizing something and one part that's not optimizing anything. So think of the configuration space again. And now... Um, plot a heat map over it, which is the objective function. So some points in weight space give you better value, um, mean that your neural network is better at predicting the, the labels, let's say. And some points mean that the neural network is worse at predicting the labels. And we can, we can write down our own cost function there. And then we can, you know, implement our own learning rules so that we end up with a system that seeks out the better regions in the configuration space. But we can use the same mental picture to describe an existing system that we don't change anymore, that we don't have control over the dynamics. And so there is still this potential function or energy function or cost function. Um, those are all the same, the same things. Um, but just different fields call them differently. And so when you look at the system, you can wait for a while, you can observe it, and it's moving around in this configuration space, and it will be more often in some places and less often in other places. And from that, you can derive a cost function. So what kind of cost function is this system optimizing for? Well, you just look at what it's doing, and you, over time, you will get an idea of what parts of the state space it likes and what parts it tries to avoid. And then that's your cost function. It's just the, the stationary distribution 
um, the visitation frequency, basically. And so once you have the visitation frequency of a system, you can describe all of its optimizing behavior. Um, so you can say, now that I have the cost function, maybe a um, very simple example is a person, maybe uh, you, you have a daily routine and you can be in different rooms of your house, you can be at work, maybe not at the moment, but um, at least there are different rooms um, at home that you can switch between. And there is some probability of going from that room to the other room and so on. And if you uh, observe somebody for, for like, or maybe you like write down every day, like what room you've been for in for how long, and then you get this kind of cross function that describes you. It's like, oh, the living room is the best, for example, you spend the most time there. And and so once you have this cost function, you can describe the dynamics. If you give me the cost function, I can basically reverse engineer you to some extent, um, to based on like what state space you chose. It's probably not like the state space always uses some abstraction because you can't go to like the kind of particle level. Um, but let's say it's different rooms, and then I can build something that also um, seeks out the same seeks out the rooms with the same preference distribution. Um, okay, so that's, that's um, the optimizing part. And then there's a part to every system that is independent of the stationary, well, it's orthogonal to the gradient on the stationary distribution. So if, I, if you give me the distribution over rooms, I can build a new agent that follows the gradient on, on this preference distribution, always tries to go towards uh, what is better under the cost function. But then there is some maybe external perturbation that keep it away from there, so it has to kind of keep going towards, towards the optimum. Um, but then there is also always, um, or there's also potentially um, a direction that doesn't change the probability. Um, and so that's, that's the direction that's orthogonal to the gradient on the cost function. So if you think of the cost function as a surface, um, like as a, as a hill surface over your configuration space, um, then you can either go up or you can walk around the contour lines of this cost function. And so that's the difference between the divergence part of the vector field that goes up on the cost function and it tries to concentrate on the, uh, on the optimal points. Um, or I guess if, it, if it's a cost function, it goes down. If it's an um, objective function to maximize, it goes up. Uh, and then there's the curl part that just walks around control lines. And so it's never optimizing for anything. It always cycles back after, after a long time. And so this is all explain why when you're talking about something as an optimization problem or you're describing maybe a natural agent trying to describe intelligence as an optimization then you will lose this part that doesn't optimize anything so you will not be able to describe that part and that's probably fine like maybe um, we have evolved to be quite efficient and so maybe we don't do a lot of unnecessary things that don't actually optimize 
any objective function. Um, but who knows, right? Maybe that's on some level of abstraction that you choose to describe the system. Maybe that's really important um, to get something that has the behavior, shows the behaviors that we think of as maybe connected to intelligence. So is this paper saying that we should look for the components similar to those that we use in deep learning uh, in the brain, and then maybe vice versa, figure out how to adjust deep learning to match, more closely match what we see uh, in brains to help us understand, to use deep learning to understand brains? Is that, is that close to the message? Yeah, yeah. So it goes in that direction. Um, I don't think machine learning and neuroscience have to converge to one thing. Uh, we can use different models in machine learning than, than the models that might be useful for explaining the brain because there are biological constraints on the brain and it's interesting to understand them and understand what kind of ways nature found around those. But just conceptually speaking, um, the best models for the type of computer hardware that we have um, are probably different. So if your goal is to, to build an algorithm that's very good at predicting labels on, on some data set, then probably like the very long-term solution will be different from the biological solution. Now, that said, at the moment, we're still quite far away from getting anything close to the intelligence of a brain, of course. And so I think neuroscience has a lot of potential for helping us with building better models in machine learning. But it doesn't have to be, um, the goal doesn't have to be to end up in the same place for both disciplines. Although that, I think that would be interesting, but that's not necessary. And what the paper is saying is we should use the same framework to break down the problem. And that will help us share insights in both directions. And as I said earlier, it's really difficult to make measurements in the brain. And there are a couple of papers from the last few years where people have studied deep learning models in a similar way in terms of like analyzing the activations, then, then the neuroscientist would study the brain and found that there are actually um, really su surprisingly strong connections between how a deep neural network processes some input to solve a prediction task and how, how the activations in the brain look like that try to solve the same prediction task. Um, and, and so there is definitely um, exchange in both directions. And I think both disciplines can learn from the other and, and use tools from there. Uh, because on the other hand, we also have no idea really how deep neural networks work and why they work. And so maybe some ideas from neuroscience would help there. Um, and I think the reason you can find these similarities between models in um, machine learning and measurements in the brain is that even though the models are very different um, in some way, they still, both systems are still trying to solve the same task. And a lot about solving a task is 
um, a lot of the computation needed to solve a task is actually more about your input data than the architecture you're using to process it. So that's why I think, I mean, nobody really knows, but um, my intuition is that probably there are some constraints on computation in general, on what information do you need to extract from your input so that later on you can, you can solve a task. Do you have any comments on how the insights of this paper might relate to, to reinforcement learning? more specifically than uh, learning in general? And this wasn't an RL paper, right? Um, it, was, it was not an RL paper. For me, the biggest takeaway of this kind of perspective um, on understanding intelligence is that for, the biggest takeaway for reinforcement learning is that we have to think a lot about what objective functions we should use in reinforcement learning. Because, I mean, it's always been bothering me that we have a reward signal that comes from the environment. And that's actually not how, um, how reinforcement learning used to be de defined uh, in, in some of the earlier work, where you would usually, uh, you know, there are some some uh, early papers on the question of where rewards come from. And the way to think about it really is that there's an environment that gives you sensory inputs, you give it actions, and it doesn't care about what you're doing. Right? Like, why would the environment care? And then there's an agent, and that agent, you can choose to break that agent down into two components. And one component gives you the reward, uh, as a function of, you know, the past sequence of inputs and the past sequence of actions. And then there is another component that tries to maximize this reward. And so that's the kind of classical reinforcement learning component, where maybe you learn a value function or, you know, there are many things that you could be doing. And, and so I think we haven't really spent a lot of time yet or enough time to understand the first component where actually the reward is being generated. And if you want to build something that is more intelligent uh, or closer to maybe an intelligent being than the current agents we use in reinforcement learning, then we have to make progress on that part because there's, um, there's not really a reward function in the world. There are some candidates that we can think of. Maybe you know optimizing for survival is good. Um, but then that doesn't really give you a good idea of the system. I want to understand. So I think this optimizing for survival in some world with like a giant simulation, like an artificial life approach to building intelligence might work to build something. Um, like, I mean, we're quite far away from that, but in principle it could work. But I, and it might be easier to study the resulting system than to study in like, biological system, but it doesn't really answer the question of how it's doing that. And maybe you don't care about that. You just want to build something that replicates um, some aspects of behavior that we see in people. But 
to me, I actually want to know what are the components that we're optimizing for, like within one lifetime. And to get that additional insight, we have to try out different objective functions, different implementations of this module one in the agent that provides the objective function to the optimization component. And we have to try them out and we have to do it in an environment that probably has to be very complex. And then we can look at the behavior and we can see if that's um, similar in some way to the behaviors we're trying to replicate. And we're very general, like people are very general in the sense that there are many different environments in which we can do something. Um, and so the objective function should also be general in the sense that it doesn't depend on, on some like underlying environment state. Like if you want me to move the glass from one side of the table to the other, then maybe if you have a physics simulator and you know the object idea of the glass and so on, you can you know compute a square distance between the position and the goal, goal position. Um, but that's not the sensory input that the agent gets. And so that's not available if you want a general implementation of the first component of the agent. So it has to be something that's um, only a function of the sensory inputs and past actions and still accounts for interesting behavior across many different environments. So are you pointing to intrinsic motivation as a key here? Yes, yes. That's how the field um, is often called, yeah. And often intrinsic motivation, um, I think there are, there are many different ways of how to really evaluate intrinsic motivation. And it's, it's very difficult. Um, and I think it's a good challenge to make progress on. Um, and there, there are parts of intrinsic motivation where you're basically trying to be better at solving a particular task. And so maybe you like sum up the intrinsic reward with the extrinsic reward and you get something that um, makes faster learning progress on the task than without the, uh, without the intrinsic motivation. Um, another evaluation setting that I really like, that I think we'll come to a bit later in, in the podcast, is that you explore without any task in mind. And then maybe you can use the data set that results from that to later on train it train a new agent on it to solve a specific, uh, specific tasks. You can see how useful this exploration was. So now let's turn to a set of four papers um, that are tightly related with each other, uh, starting with, uh, with Planet. That's learning latent dynamics for planning for pixels. Um, can you tell us what, what was the main idea of this the Planet paper? The main idea was to learn, in, learn a dynamics model of the environment that's accurate enough that you can do reinforcement learning with it. And people have been trying to get model-based RL to work in various, in various instantiations for a long time. Um, and there has been lots of progress as well. Um, but it was really almost like a bottleneck where um, it kind of worked on simple tasks, but then it didn't really work on harder tasks and so in practice, people were still using model-free methods most of the time. Even though model-based methods 
uh, appealing in different ways because for one, they it's kind of like a really intuitive thing that you have a model of the world that lets you predict into the future. I mean, we know that people can do that. So probably our agents should as well. And But then having a world model also lets you do a lot of things that you couldn't do with a model free agent. So it's almost this backlog of research ideas um, in my head and other people's heads that um, were blocked by not having accurate enough world models to implement them. And so that was really the goal because I wanted to work on intrinsic motivation. Yeah, you can do better exploration if you have a world model. And I think we'll talk about this when we, when we get to the disagreement paper um, about the retrospective versus expected exploration. And so I knew to do that. I really needed world models to work on some tasks, um, some kind of tasks that I would be happy with, um, with high dimensional inputs and so on. And, and that's why I started working on, on learning dynamics models from pixels. So that's so interesting. So you really pl are planning multiple papers ahead for where you want to get to, uh, being strategic about it. Yes. And maybe not so much a chain of papers, but I always had this goal of building autonomous agents with intrinsic motivation. And, and then um, whenever I, I start a new project, I, I reflect on that and, and think about what is the limitation? Like, can we do this now? Or is there anything that's still necessary to solve before we can build that? And it was almost a bit frustrating in the beginning when I started my master's in London that I wanted to do this like active exploration, but there was just no, um, no accurate dynamics model that I could use for it. And then people told me, you know, yeah, we all know that like, this would be cool to have, but we've been trying for a really long time and, and it just doesn't work and we don't really know why. Um, and I thought, okay, well, you know, I'll, I'll try and, and it took a year. Um, and, uh, Tim was really helpful, Timothy Lillicrab, um, when he advised the project and my manager at Google at the time, James Davidson, uh, was very helpful as well. Um, and we just went through it quite systematically and we kind of tried for, for a really long time and eventually it worked. And I think there isn't even like a single thing that I could point to that that was like the the point where it made click, where it suddenly started to work. Um, I mean, those were mostly bugs in the implementation where, oh, like, you know, we normalized the input twice and then at the end it's like during evaluation you do different normalization than, than during training. Of course, your model doesn't make good predictions. So it was mainly to... We had a pretty clear idea of what we wanted to do. Um, I wanted to build this latent dynamics model because um, I think I think a lot of RL work with low-dimensional inputs, it's a bit too toy. I actually don't even read those papers anymore in most cases. Um, 
and you can do quite well with random search and so on. So, so to me, there need to be some some high dimensional input where representation learning is part of the challenge. And and then if you predict forward, it doesn't really make sense to do that in pixel space from one image to the next because that gets very expensive and errors can accumulate very quickly. And it's definitely not what we do. Like when I plan on when I plan my day, I don't plan how my like the activations on my retina change. Um, like hours from now, it's all in an abstract space, and it's both abstract in it both abstracts from space um, into concepts and so on, and it also abstracts in time, and we. So far, we focused on the first aspect, and we're trying to. We're also doing some work on the temporal abstraction, but I think that's still quite unsolved. Um, yeah. So at the end, we, we had this kind of clear picture of what we wanted to do, and we didn't actually deviate much from it throughout the project. We just visualized a lot of metrics and and tried to really understand what was going on. And we found a lot of bugs that we fixed over time, and then. At the end, it just worked, and we were quite surprised. So that must have been really satisfying. You worked on this for a year, uh, and the first thing that jumped out at me from this paper was the efficiency gain. It said there was a line that said uh, data efficiency gain of planet over D4PG, a factor of 250 times, which is just huge. So was that was that surprising to you? I guess you'd been working on it for a year, so by that time you were used to it, but... Did you expect anything of that level when you went into this? Um, to be honest, I didn't really care about data efficiency at all because I just needed a world model to do exploration with. I didn't really care about it being so much more data efficient, but it turned out to be more data efficient. And, um, and of course, that's useful for a lot of applications, like if you want to use world models for robotics, for example, where environment steps are much more expensive than in a simulation, um, then it really matters. So of course we put it in the paper, um, but I wasn't actually, like, it, it didn't actually matter to me, and it still doesn't. To, to add to this, um, I think a, the reason it is more data efficient, there are multiple reasons. Um, we don't exactly know how much each of them contributes. But one reason is that a lot of model-free methods just don't use any specific representation learning. They learn representations just through the reinforcement learning loss for maybe value learning or policy gradients. And so the only signal that goes in is like the action that you chose and the, the reward that you got. And that's that just... If, if you think about, like, let's say I throw you in, in an unknown environment or do well in that environment in some way, maybe you're trying to get food or you're trying to solve a specific task you want to solve. Um, and if you just imagine that everything you would learn about this world would just come from the reward and the actions you chose, that's just insane. Right? That, that means, like, I'm not, not trying to find any correlations in my input, for example. Right? I'm not trying to explain what I'm seeing. And, and that just 
more, more mathematically speaking, there's a lot of information in, in the images or in, in the sensory inputs that you get about the environment. And so you should use that in some explicit way using representation learning, I think. And it's, this can be quite separate, actually, from the RL algorithm. So there's a lot of work showing um, a lot of applications, uh, application papers showing that you can you have your RL agent, and then in addition to the policy gradient loss, you just have a reconstruction loss from maybe the features of your some higher, higher representation within the network, you just try to reconstruct your input. And that really helps a lot, even though it's a very simple thing to do, um, especially when, when you have high dimensional inputs. And so it's, I think it's perfectly fine to do research on representation learning for control and like core RL separately. Um, but if you want something that's data efficient, you should definitely make use of your inputs in some way. And to add to that, the same is true for world models as well, if you care about a specific task. Because in principle, you only need to make accurate predictions of future rewards. And that's, that's enough to get maximum performance on the task. So in principle, you don't even need to reconstruct your inputs in the world model. It's just that then you're back to um, only learning from a very limited learning signal. And I think there is still some benefit in, in learning a world model, even without any explicit representation learning. Because in addition to the representation learning, you still incorporate some other useful priors into the world model, such that, uh, for example, that there is a compact, um, compact activation vector that explains the state of the world at one point in time. That's, that's a useful prior. Right? It means that we have this high-dimensional input, and for the agent, that's this gigantic pixel grid. And it means that there's a much smaller representation um, that has to, has to describe everything um, that the agent needs to know about the input. And, so, and then if you, have a, if you have a dynamics model, then there needs to be a function that takes this description of one point in time to the description of, of the next point in time. And then that has to be enough to predict the good action at that point in time, or predict the value or, or the reward. And so this idea of, of a hidden Markov model structure uh, is also useful. It's a useful prior. I don't know exactly how much the representation learning contributes to, to the data efficiency compared to the just learning a latent space uh, compact representation of, of the environment state, but, or of, of the sequence of past inputs to the agent. Um, but for example, that's what uh, Mu0 does. It's not learning a global world model where the agent learns everything about its inputs. It's just learning what is necessary to solve a specific task because all the learning signal comes from the reward and the value and, and the policy gradients. Um, so, but you're still incorporating this, at least this one prior of having a compact representation. So in, in, in the planet paper, I think you, you separate the stochastic and deterministic components uh, of the state. And can you help us understand um, why you want to separate those and then how that separation works? Yes. So we, 
when we came up with the model, we basically just tried random things and we had no idea what we were doing. And, and this particular combination seemed to work well. Um, and so afterwards, and, and we tried a lot of other designs and they did not work. And I think by now I have a bit of a better understanding. Um, of course, we had some hypotheses of why maybe stochastic part helps and deterministic part helps. Um, but then later on, doing other projects, building on top of this model, we got some more insights of why this is this might be a particularly useful way of, of designing the, uh, the latent transition function. And so one, one point is that if, you're, if you want a latent dynamics model where, given the sequence of states, you can predict all the images individually, so there's no skip connection from one image to the next, let's say, then, then your sequence of latent states has to be stochastic uh, in an environment where the agent can't make deterministic predictions. So that could be either because maybe there's actually noise injected in the simulator, in, in how the simulator works, uh, or it could be because the agent doesn't know everything about the world. So it's a partially observable environment, and that makes it stochastic from the perspective of the agent. And so to predict multiple possible futures, you need stochasticity in your, in your um, latent state sequence. But if you make it fully stochastic, then you get a typical state space model where the hidden state at one step is just, a, let's say, a Gaussian where the mean is predicted through some neural network from the last state and the last action. Um, and, and the variance is also predicted by the neural network. Then there's a lot of noise in tra during training, and and that noise, um, technically speaking, it adds information to your state at every time step. But it's not information about the environments. So it's not useful information, and it kind of hides the information that the model has extracted already. So if you think about maybe the agent um, has seen some images, and then it has inferred the position of objects and put that into the latent state. And now you predict forward for five time steps, but at every time step you're adding noise to the state, then it becomes really hard for the model or for the agent to preserve information over multiple time steps. It's just erased after a couple of steps. And here you're talking about the uh, conditional VAE formulation, is that right? What, what is the conditional... VAE formulation. Sorry, I, I meant um, <laughs> when you're talking about a stochastic model like you are right now, are you are you mm -hmm. speaking about like a VAE? Yes. So it's it's a latent variable model the way a VAE is a latent variable model, and there and we train it the same way a VAE is being trained. So it's the same elbow objective function or, or free energy objective function. Ah, but you don't call it a VAE, um, and and it it has a lot of similarities. So you could you could see it as a um, as a very kind of specific case of a VAE, where instead of having one kind of fixed size representation um, as your latent variable, you instead have a sequence, a Markov chain of latent variables, and then your data is also a sequence of images rather than a single image. So. You can think of it as a sequential VAE. So you were describing how the um, 
the stochastic component cannot capture all the information. And so that's why you need the deterministic component as well? So theoretically speaking, it could. The stochastic version, the fully stochastic model, is general. So it could learn to set the variance to close to zero for some of the state components. And that way, it would preserve information over many time steps without it getting erased by noise. Um, it's just hard to learn. And you don't really get good gradients for learning that because the optimization process is, is so noisy. And so you would basically end up with a model that doesn't learn long-term dependencies in the data well. And so having a deterministic component is, is in principle, just, just like setting the variances to zero for, for some of the stochastic components in the state so that you put in the prior that there are some things that should be preserved over a long time. So is the idea that in certain uh, areas of the environment, uh, things could be fully or more so deterministic or more so stochastic? Like, do these two components kind of um, uh, take, uh, become more influential or less in certain areas as appropriate? That's an interesting question. Um, so I like... I think that's um, it's basically the same question, but I like to think about um, I like to th I like to not think about the implementation of the environment. So um, this comes up for exploration as well, but in this case, whether the environment is more stochastic or less stochastic in some in some states doesn't matter. What matters is whether it's more or less predictable for the agent, right? Because the agent doesn't really know more about the environment than the sequence of its inputs. And it can't make more sense of them than what its model architecture lets, lets the agent um, make sense of the data. So more stochastic, practically what it actually means is that the agent can't model it well. The, the agent doesn't know exactly what's going to happen with things that you know, many possible things could happen. And and that could be because we inject, like, pseudo-random noise into the simulation, um, or it could be just because there are so many visual details, let's say, or, um, they, yeah, the model is too small to really make an accurate prediction for some of the more complex parts of the world. And now to answer your question, the way, the way I think about this this latent model now with the stochastic and the deterministic part is that th there's another big benefit of having a stochastic part. And it's not so much about stochasticity um, in, in the data, but it's more about allowing you to control how much information goes into the, into the deterministic state. So you can think of this as as a deterministic model, where at every at every time step, um, you have a stochastic variable that lets you add information about the current image into the model. And there's a KL regularizer that encourages the model to not incorporate that much new information into the hidden state. But you're still training it to reconstruct all the images. 
So what this reconstruction error does together with the KL regularizer is when you want to reconstruct the image from some particular state, then the model is allowed to look at the image through the stochastic bottleneck, but it's encouraged not to because of the KL regularizer. So instead, it would look at all the um, input information that it has already extracted from past time steps, because there's no KL regularizer for those. Uh, or there is, but it already paid for it. So, so the model is better off using the deterministic path to look back far in time to get the information from there, as long as it's something that can be predicted from the past. And I think that encourages the model to learn long-term dependencies. Okay, so maybe I'm misunderstanding a little bit here, but is, is this model not Markovian? Like, does it not look back at the only the, the, the one-step previous state? Or you're saying, you're saying it's looking back in time through, implicitly, through the deterministic latent. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yes, exactly. So uh, it's, it's actually, it's good that you, that you're bringing up this point because it, there are different ways to, to think about the stochastic deterministic parts in the model. You can either think of it as a Markovian model where just some elements in the state are not stochastic. Right. And then your state is basically the concatenation of deterministic and stochastic state at every time step. Um, or you can think of it as a non-Markovian model of only the stochastic state. So if you don't, if you kind of ignore the deterministic part from your model description, from like when you write down a probabilistic graphical model and you only write down the stochastic sequence of states, then this deterministic RNN actually lets the stochastic state at some time step t depend on all the past stochastic states through this deterministic kind of shortcut. Um, but that, yeah, so th those are both valid views. You could say it's, it's a non-Markovian stochastic model, or you could say it's Markovian uh, hybrid stochastic deterministic model. But the second perspective is useful for the implementation because it means that when you observe a new image, you don't have to go back in time. You only need the last stochastic and deterministic state and the new image to compute the next stochastic and deterministic state. So I was looking at a little bit at the code for the RSSM uh, component, and uh, there was a comment saying that if an observation is present, the posterior latent is computed from both the hidden state and the observation. So is that... Um, does that mean that when it's imagined, is that is that because when it's imagining the future, the observation is not available? Is that what that line means? Yes. Yes, exactly. So you can think of this as the prior and the approximate posterior in a VIE, or the prior and the encoder in a VIE. They both give you distribution over the latent variable. They are both a, a belief over the code. But one is a more accurate belief because it got, it got some context information, in this case, the whole image. So, so one is the prior, one is the posterior or approximate posterior. And this principle is more general than that. You could have additional context information. So you could have a, you could have the whole context, like the, you know, just give it the whole image as you do in a VAE. 
to try to get the most accurate belief, but you could give it like some information as well. You could either give it part of the image, like a patch maybe, um, or you could give it some additional kind of context information about the image, like a label, uh, like a class label for the image. And you know, what's the belief over the code if I only know it's it's a dog? And then that's going to be a, a narrower distribution than the prior belief that doesn't know any context. But it's still going to be wider distribution than the belief I get when I condition on the whole image. And so in a temporal model, something similar happens where the prior belief over the code at some time step t, there, there are multiple beliefs you could have over that, right? If you don't know anything, then that could just be standard Gaussian, let's say. But in RL or in, in a sequence model in general, uh, there is a lot of context you know. And that context is basically all the past inputs, but just not the current one and, of course, not the future ones yet. And so that's, that's the prior um, that you need to use, at least when you just write down the standard, um, standard elbow objective. The prior um, over the code at time step t, the, the distribution, the belief that doesn't depend on the current image, um, should still have access to all the past images. And another way to, to view this is as a Kalman filter, because basically the model is just a, a nonlinear learned Kalman filter. So, so in a Kalman filter, you also have this temporal prior, which is called the prediction step that tries to predict the, um, the hidden variables without knowing the current image. And then there's an update step that takes this prior belief, this temporal prior belief, and updates it to a more precise distribution by looking at the new input, by looking at the new image. And so we do the same in a sequential VIE. So is the model aware that when it's imagining future time steps, that it's less certain about those in some sense? Yes. Yes, so those are two neural network components. You actually have to learn two transition functions. One where you give it the past state, the past hidden state, and the past action, and you, you train it to predict the distribution over the next state. Um, and then in another one where you give it the past state and the past action and the current image, and then try to predict another distribution. And that will be more precise, a narrower distribution, and it actually is when you look at the entropy, because it has information to more context, or access to more context information. Yeah, and the way those two are trained is that during training, you always use the one that can see the data, but the KL regularizer is from that second distribution to the first, so to the prior transition function. And so that trains the prior transition function to basically try and predict what the posterior, the better belief is going to be, uh, but without seeing the new image. So it won't be able to do a perfect job unless the sequence of inputs is fully deterministic. Um, and so that is the only thing that trains, this KL regularizer is actually the only loss term that trains the prior transition function. Uh, and the prior transition function is what you use for 
um, forward imagination when you're just planning into the future, but you don't know the actual inputs for those time steps. Um, and at the same time, the KL regularizer um, regularizes the posterior belief, saying that you know even though you got to look at or the at the image, don't be like overconfident. Try to still be close to what you would have predicted without seeing this data point. Try to still be close to the temporal prior. Can you talk about what um, range of environments this type of approach is is best suited for, or or the limits in in what environments would um, this could be applied to? Well, does it have something to do with how much stochasticity they have, or? Um, I mean, it seems like the the, the, the environments you use are really pixel, uh, l- large dimension, uh, large dimensional pixels, uh, state space. But is there is that the is it is that the main area where this uh, method is useful, or does it go beyond that? Yes. So I think the approach is generally useful for for a lot of reinforcement learning setups. There are some applications of reinforcement learning um, where you not really have an agent in, in that sense, but you're just trying to solve some discrete optimization problem or some black box optimization problem where you don't get gradients. Um, so in, in those cases, I don't know like when you're trying to, um, I don't know, like maybe try to predict a proof for a mathematical statement. I, I don't know if... I haven't really thought about those problems. But when you have an agent in an environment, um, and the especially if the environment is partially observed, so you have to integrate information over time. Right? So for example, an image won't tell you velocities of objects, it just tells you positions. And then um, if, it's a, if the field of view is limited because you're only looking in one direction and you don't see the objects in the other direction, you also have to integrate information over time. And so then this is a very useful, very useful general approach um, because you're, you're making use of the factorization of, of a partial observable environment. So in some sense, the latent states that you're learning uh, can be thought of as a replacement of the hidden states of the environment that the agent doesn't have access to. Now, this is important. The latent states learned by the agent are not an approximation of the environment state. There's no reason whatsoever to believe that they will become similar in value to whatever the environment state is. But they are an alternative representation that, if the model is trained well, also explains the same sequence of observations given the same sequence of of actions, so it's like a alternative implementation of the environment, if you want. Um, and so that that's really powerful because now you've got a Markov system. So once you have this representation, and you can even make predictions into the future given actions, you don't need a recurrent policy anymore. The state is already sufficient. Um, and I think your question also hinted a bit in the direction of could we do this for low-dimensional inputs? like more typical for these Mujoko tasks? And the answer is yes, we have tried that at some point and it does work. Um, and it is a bit faster than learning from pixels, but actually not that much. Um, yeah, and it works well. And I think 
um, Brandon Amos had a paper um, on differentiable um, model predictive control where he does that and also found that it worked quite well. But I haven't done any, um, any, yeah, we had one project where we tried it on low dimensional states and it worked, but it didn't go anywhere. So it, yeah, I'm more interested in the pixel space. And right now I'm trying to scale up these models to more complex environments. Um, some of that we had in the, in the follow-up paper um, for Dreamer. All right, let's turn to another recent paper of yours. Dream to control learning behaviors by latent imagination. Can you, uh, now we got to hear you describe this paper in our December in Europe's episode. Can you remind us of the main idea with this paper? Sure, so one, one limitation that Planet has is, so it does learn a quite powerful wealth model but it doesn't make use of it in the most efficient way to derive behaviors. Planet uses online, online search at every time step when it interacts with the environment. And that can be really expensive because you, do many, you, you predict forward many trajectories and then you select the one action that you like the best and you execute it and you throw away all this, all this effort and you like do another search at the next time step and so collecting data becomes quite expensive. So it's doing model predictive control? Exactly, yeah. And the second limitation is that in, in the original planet agent, we don't learn a value function and there is no temporal abstraction. And that means the agent is only going to consider rewards within the planning horizon. And you can't increase the planning horizon uh, infinitely because for one, eventually your model is going to make more, um, it's going to make less accurate predictions. Um, but also if you're searching for a longer plan, it's going to take you longer to find a good plan because the search space got so much bigger. There's so much more longer plans than there are shorter plans. Um, so, so it's not really computationally tractable. Um, to consider very far delayed rewards that are like 100, 200 time steps into the future. And, and so one way that I thought initially you could get around that is through temporal abstraction. And I still think that's really the long-term way to go. Um, but there, we have value functions in reinforcement learning and they work quite well. So for now we can solve it that way. And so Dreamer is really a follow-up on Planet where, he, where we use the same dynamics model, the same world model, but we're using it in a more clever way to learn how to predict good actions. And there is a substantial in, increase in computational performance. So we went down from maybe one day for a million time steps to like four to five hours. And there's a substantial improvement in the horizon of how, how many future rewards the agent considers. And so that leads to much higher empirical performance as well. And the way we do that is we throw away the model predictive control part 
And instead, we have a neural network to predict actions, an actor network that takes the latent state of the world model and predicts a distribution over, over the action that hopefully is best for this state. And then we have a second neural network in the latent space, which predicts the value, the expected sum of future rewards um, with some discount factor that the current actor network uh, is thought to achieve from this particular state that is input to the value network. So with the value function and the actor, you can do an efficient actor critic algorithm in latent space. And you can train that from model predictions uh, independently of the data collection. So you don't have to do any online planning anymore. Once you have a good actor to collect data, you just run the world model at every step to get the latent state and then or to update the latent state from the last step to the to the next one to incorporate the new input. And then you just send that to the actor and you predict an action and, and execute that. And so all the um, all the model predictions or planning, if you want to call it, still want to call it planning, happens offline independently of the current episode. So in principle, you could also distribute this and run it asynchronously very efficiently. Um, and the way you learn these two components now, um, like one thing you could do is you have a world model, you know, it basically defines a new RL problem. It's an imagination MDP where instead of environment states, you have these model states and so on, and it predicts rewards as well. So you could throw any model-free RL algorithm at it now, and you could solve it without actually causing additional environment interaction. So we'd get a very data-efficient algorithm. But you can actually, if you're doing that, you're not really making full use of the world model because we have a neural network world model, so we can actually compute gradients through it. But all the model-free RL algorithms, they are designed for real environments where you can't differentiate through it. So they don't make use of these gradients. And that's why we can do better by developing an actor-critic algorithm that's specific for world models. And the algorithm is actually quite simple. You, you encode some like past data from the replay buffer to get some initial uh, model states. And then you imagine forward a sequence with some imagination horizon, let's say 20 steps, uh, using the actions not from the replay buffer, but from the actor network. So you're just like the actor's just trying out something in the model world. And then you predict all the corresponding rewards for those states. You predict all the corresponding values as well based on your current value estimate. And you want to maximize that with respect to the actions that or with respect to the actor network, the parameters of the actor network. So you can actually compute um, very elegantly, compute the gradient of the sum of future rewards and future values uh, that you can like weigh in some way if you want. And you can compute the derivative of that with respect to the actor parameters just by backpropagating through the multi-step predictions of your model because it's all the neural network components. And there are some stochastic nodes in there because the model state has a stochastic component and the actions are also sampled from the actor distribution. Um, so there are two ways to, you can deal with it. If it's continuous and can be reparameterized, like a Gaussian, for example, 
then you just use a reparameterization trick to compute the gradients through all these steps. Right? And if it's discrete, then you can use a straight through estimation, which is not really the exact gradient, but it still works very well. Um, and once you do that, you know exactly if you change the active parameters a little bit, how is that gonna, uh, at what rate is that gonna increase the future reward or decrease the future rewards? So you know how to change the actor network. And then the only thing that's left is optimizing the value network. And that's just done through simple temporal difference learning. So the value at one step just should correspond to maybe the reward plus the value at the next step. Or you could do you could actually do a multi-step return. So the value should correspond to the next 10 rewards plus the 11th value. Um, what we actually do in the paper is we do a lambda return, which means we we take all of these n-step returns for different values of n. So one reward plus the value, two rewards plus the following value, and so on, and we weigh them. Um, but yeah, that's just so we don't have to choose a hyperparameter for n, and it yeah, doesn't really matter that much. So on a high level, um, is this sounds similar to Sutton's uh, Dyna architecture, but then Dyna didn't have this notion of of gradients, or it was independent of what kind of function approximator I think was used, right? Yes. Sutton's Dyna, I, I think, basically includes almost all of model-based RL. Uh, it's it's a very kind of very general high-level perspective, where um, you have some data from the real environment and you use that to learn some model of the environment uh, or of the of the data that you got from the environment, and then you use that model to somehow select an action and then you can execute that in the real world. And I think the Dyna paper even talks about um, online planning as well, but maybe that's a follow-up paper. Um, but yeah, in, in principle, these are all within the category of Dyna-style algorithms. So you're building on the work you did in Planet, and you use, do you use the same RSSM deterministic plus stochastic um, type model here? Was this, was the model the same? Yes, the world model is exactly the same. And we for, for continuous control, we found the world model still works across like all the 20 continuous control tasks. Um, or there are a few more, but we chose the ones for which the best model-free algorithm got non-zero performance because some of the tasks don't really make sense from pixels. Um, you can't see the things that are necessary for solving a task. So, yeah, the world model just worked for all these. And the improvement comes from the value function and also comes from the actor network, which can actually learn a better policy than an online planning algorithm can potentially do because it doesn't assume that the actions are independent independent in time, for example. Um and the actor network also has a lot more optimization steps in total. Because for the online MPC and Planet, you can do maybe 10 optimization steps, but then you have to have an action at the end of the day. Because otherwise, if you do too many, too many optimization steps, then it becomes way too slow to really interact with the environment. Um, whereas the actor network in Dreamer is shared. There's just one actor network throughout the whole training process of the agent. So over time, 
it will get trained much more. And later on, uh, or in addition to the continuous tasks, we did some discrete tasks in Atari and uh, DeepMind Lab. And we also found that the same world model just works. Um, but we did increase the size of the stochastic and deterministic states. So we, we just gave the model more capacity. Um, and so I, I was actually really surprised by that. But what it said is that the planet agent was bottlenecked not by the model, but by the planning part. Was, was that surprising to you to when you determined the final performance of the Dreamer agent? Or was that how, how, what you expected? No, I was actually quite surprised. So I knew that to do some of the more interesting tasks that I wanted to solve, uh, that I wanted to do exploration in eventually, we needed to consider rewards further into the future than 20 steps. Uh, so we couldn't use Planet out of the box. And I almost thought that, oh, there are probably much bigger problems and we probably have to find a better world model and like, you know, is it even worth focusing on, on the horizon problem or are there much bigger bottlenecks at the moment? Um, but it was a kind of almost easy problem to tackle because there are already solutions for, for that with, with temporal difference learning. And we just kind of applied that to the setting we were in where you have a differentiable world model to make efficient use of that. And I was really surprised how well it worked. And I was also really surprised how that that a actor that doesn't do any look ahead while interacting with the environment can do better and even be as data efficient as uh, online model predictive control. Do you think that um, Dreamer would do pretty well even if it didn't uh, differentiate through the model? Like if you were just, or maybe that's something in between Planet and Dreamer, like the idea of just distilling Planet's planning into a policy network, kind of like maybe like what Alpha Zero would do. That's different than what you did here though, right? Because you, you, you differentiated through the model. Yeah. Is it, would that be a reasonable thing to do? You think that would work well here or? Yeah, there are, there's a, there's a design space of different, of different, algorithms that operate within the world model to derive long-term behaviors, to learn value function and an actor. And the way AlphaGo does it is basically just, just try to regress past returns with the value function. Um, and so we can't really, you can't really do that with a, with a big reply buffer because the returns you got on, in the past, they depended on the actions that you that your actor chose in the past. But now your, act, your actor is already better, so those returns won't reflect the value of the actor in, in the state right now. Um, but if you make the replay buffer small enough, it's approximately, you're approximately on policy. And, and then if you just train it on a lot of data, then, then that can work well. It's just that in the low data regime that we're in, uh, making your replay buffers small is, is a bad idea and, and just pretty clearly always hurts performance. So, so we couldn't really go with this like approximate on policy approach to learn the value function. We needed to, uh, we needed to do TD learning. 
uh, and we needed to do it on imagined rollouts because we can't use the past replay buffer data because it's too different. So now to do online, to, to do imagined rollouts, you need a policy to select actions. And as you said, you could in principle use a, a search to select actions there, um, like a like like a um, CEM search, let's say, and then distill that, but like learn a value from it, and then and then learn an actor network from that, but um, or even not learn an actor network anymore. If you have a value function, you can just use that during planning, and that will be fine, but. The problem is you can't really afford to do the CEM search at every time step in imagination for like you know so many imagination trajectories. So that's why we actually ended up uh, abandoning the the explicit search and switched to using an actor network. Yeah, and um, I think your question was also whether it could work. Uh, similarly well if we ignored the gradients mm -hmm. um and i'm not a hundred percent sure so what, what i do know is that once you have the world model all the environment all, all the training inside the world model uh, just costs you walk clock time it doesn't cost you environment interaction so you could use a less efficient optimization algorithm uh, in imagination and you would get the same data efficiency in the real world. And I don't see a reason why, why a normal model-free algorithm inside the world model uh, couldn't get to the same final performance as well. But I think it would be computationally more expensive because you would need more updates. But I haven't tried it. So let's turn to uh, another very recent paper of yours, uh, Planning to Explore via Latent Disagreement. Can you tell us what the uh, the main idea here uh, is with this paper? Yes. So I I was really excited about the paper because I finally got to the point where I wanted to be um, about two and a half years ago when I started to work on Planet, <laughs> which is to do forward-looking exploration. And, and so we solved the world model problem to a sufficient degree, and then we solved the uh, horizon problem to a sufficient degree. So that was Planet and Dreamer. And then we could finally do um, exploration with it. And that's the, that's the key point of this paper. And, and there are a couple of ideas in it. One is um, when you do exploration, you, you need some measure of novelty that you can optimize for as your intrinsic reward. Um, so we use an ensemble disagreement for that, which um, Deepak Patak, who's a collaborator on the project, has done a lot of work with. And there are a couple of papers also from other people who show that ensemble disagreement works works really well uh, as a novelty signal. And I would even include random network distillation into the category of ensemble disagreement. And so, so that's the kind of um, the source of novelty that gives you the intrinsic reward. But then there's another aspect to to the project, which is when you do exploration to learn about the environment, 
and you have novelty as some objective function, then that's a non-stationary objective function. Because every time you interact with the world, you see new data. And, and then that changes your knowledge. And, and so that changes what you think is novel about like what future inputs will be novel. And so there's a conceptual problem with model-free exploration because model-free optimization works by training a policy from samples of the real environment. And so you have some novelty objective that you want to maximize with your exploration policy. And to do that, you need to draw samples from the environment. Um, to improve the policy for that novelty objective. But while you're training the policy, the novelty objective has already changed because you've, you needed all these samples to train your policy and those samples tell you more about the environment. So, so in, in some sense, um, it, doesn't really make, it doesn't really make that much sense conceptually. Sorry, is that why um, a lot of the curiosity formulations just take an incredibly long time, like a huge billions of, of, of samples? Yes, I think that's an important part of it. Um, and I think that you can be much more data efficient by doing forward-looking exploration. And to do forward-looking uh, forward exploration, you really need a world model. At least I don't see another way of doing it. Because you need to train a policy to maximize the novelty reward without changing the knowledge of the agent. So without causing any additional environment interaction. And that way you can actually find the best policy for your current reward and then execute that for maybe one step or maybe for multiple steps. Um, and then gather some more data and then update the model and update your novelty reward and then optimize the policy again. So you're really like doing a lot of compute to decide what is the best action I can choose next, um, rather than the model-free approach where the policy will always lag behind because it's it hasn't converged on on the novelty reward, but you're already changing the novelty reward. Okay, cool. So could you maybe just uh, make crystal clear for us again this distinction between um, retrospective novelty and expected surprise? And and so and and what is the more common uh, case here? I guess the um, retrospective novelty is more is the more common case. Looking at the at the liter at the, the past literature. Yes, yes, I would say that's yeah, that's fair to say. Um, so these are the two terms that I, I like to use to describe these two ways of using exploration. Although both have been done um, for a long time. But yeah, so the retrospective um, retrospective surprise is what a model-free agent maximizes if it has an intrinsic reward. It, what it basically is doing is, you know, in the beginning you don't know anything, so you do random actions, and then you find something that's novel, and then so. You, you simulate an episode and you predict all the intrinsic rewards for that episode. And in the beginning, it will all be novel because you don't know anything yet. And so then you train your policy to... Um, it basically tells your policy, oh, this was a really good trajectory because it was very novel. So you're reinforcing the same behavior. And 
if you were really good at optimizing your policy, then it would, and the environment isn't too random, then it would go and realize the same trajectory again. Um, but that's exactly not what you want because you just went there. So it's not novel anymore. It was novel by the time you, you tried it for the first time. Um, and so you do it again. And this time you get a low reward. And so then you encourage the policy to not go there again anymore. So then what does the policy do? It has no idea. It just knows don't go there. And then it's doing another random exploration somewhere else, going there a second time to find out it's not novel anymore. Like, in practice, there is more generalization in the network going on and so on, so it's not exactly this. Uh, but I think it's a useful mental picture um, to understand what's really wrong with retrospective exploration. And in contrast to that, there is expected exploration or planning to explore forward-looking exploration where you use a predictive model of the future to optimize your policy in imagination so that the policy gets really good at um, choosing whatever at the time you're training it is novel to the agent. But since you're training it from imagined rollouts, the training doesn't tell the agent anything new about the environment. And so the intrinsic reward doesn't change. You can really optimize this uh, for much longer in principle, even until your policy converges fully and then in the most extreme case, you would just execute one action of that policy and then like retrain your world model and, and so on, retrain your uh, policy in imagination. And then you really get what is most promising to explore next. And you can look into the future and think, oh, if I go here, I don't really know what's going to happen here. But for the things that I think might be happening, some of them are like really interesting because they're really different from everything I've seen so far and others are not so, uh, not so dif different from what I've seen so far. Uh, and then you can go in a really directed way um, and to, to the parts that your model expects um, are the most, the most interesting parts of the world. So you can maximize the information, uh, the expected information that, that you imagine you could gain about the environment. There was a cool paper uh, called Model-Based Active Exploration where they do something quite similar uh, but on much simpler environments and without any high-dimensional inputs. But they learn an ensemble of, they basically learn um, 10 environment models and then the disagreement between their predictions um, is the reward. And then they train like basically a soft actor critic or some other model free algorithm to maximize this imagined reward on, on the imagined predictions. So it's, it's also implementing this forward looking exploration. Um, now, the challenge we had in addition to that is that we have high dimensional image inputs. So we can't really afford to do the the, uh, the policy optimization in image space, we have to do it in the latent space. And so we need some way of defining the novelty reward there. And what we did for that is from every latent state during training, we predict an ensemble to try and regress the observation embedding for the next time step, whatever the confnet 
produces in terms of features before it goes into the model at the next step. And so you get the ensemble of one-step predictors um, that's more efficient than actually like replicating, like training multiple RSSM architectures. It's just like some feed-forward layers. And, and that turned out to work really well. And once you have this trained, for training, of course, you need a target for the next observation embedding. But for imagination training, you only need the variance, the disagreement um, of these ensemble predictors. So you don't need the future observations. You can do it all in, in, in the latent space of the world model. You predict a um, predicted trajectory of states. And then for every state, you um, feed it to all the ensemble predictors and you just compute the disagreement between them. How does this formulation uh, respond to the noisy TV problem where model world models, um, some world models get confused by, by random noise, sources of, of random noise? Yeah. Um, and I'd like to connect this to the earlier point where it's not so much about whether the environment is stochastic or random or not. Um, so aleatoric uncertainty or reducible uncertainty uh, is not just the property of the environment, right? whether the screen is unpredictable or not. Um, it's also a property of your agent and the modeling capacities of your agent. So even if something in principle is perfectly predictable, if your model is too weak, then it will never learn it and you don't want to get stuck trying to learn about that forever um, where you could actually move on to other parts of the world where there's lots of things that you can learn. So the question, question of the noisy TV really becomes the question of how do I know when I should give up on learning something and move on to the next thing? And conceptually, I think the answer is you don't really ever know um, but the best you can do is learn things in order of increasing difficulty. Learn the easiest things first, the things that are easiest for you. And so eventually you will have learned everything that you can learn and then you will be stuck on the next hardest thing, but there is not really a way to avoid that. So, so to do that, to, to know... Um, to have an idea of what you can't learn, you need a noise model. So you need, you need a way to, if you have a deterministic model, um, then you, you have two problems. For one, it kind of has to explain everything perfectly. And, and the second is you don't really, you can't really consider multiple hypotheses um, over the models. Right, you just like this one model, some like one point in the weight space of all possible models, and you don't really know how much certainty you have in that model. So you don't know how much the certainty reduced after you see some new data. Uh, so if you have a distribution over models like uh, Bayesian neural network or an ensemble, then you can that gives you a bit of an idea of how much you know. For example, how, what's the disagreement in your ensemble? Um, but then you also you also want a way to allow noise in your predictions. For example, for example if, you're, if you try to, let's say, just predict the next observation, to keep it simple, 
and you, from like maybe the last input and the action. And you do that, you do that with an ensemble of Gaussian models, then you're allowing some error in the prediction. So you're saying, you know, each model tries to really predict the next input, um, but with a Gaussian distribution. So it doesn't have to be perfect. It's trying to get the mean to be the right mean, but then also if the observation is somewhere else, it's okay because we're predicting this Gaussian. Um, so we assign some possibility to all, all the next inputs we could get. And so then um, the variance in your output of this Gaussian is basically the amount of noise that you assume there is in the data. And so the more noise there is in the data, uh, maybe you should avoid those parts of the environment. And that's what the expected information game also tells you mathematically um, and intuitively. This works out really nicely because you have this ensemble of models. They all predict the Gaussian over something in the future, let's say the next image. And even though the next image is, is a bit random, uh, and maybe inherently stochastic, the means of your ensemble over time, when you get enough data, they will still converge to the mean of whatever is the distribution of the next input. And so the ensemble disagreement will go to zero, even though there is randomness in, in your inputs. And so you will not be interested in them anymore. So it's able to model the stochasticity in a way that makes it not curious about it anymore. Actually, it's not clear to me how that works. So if let's, let's say the agent comes across, uh, two, two, two displays, or let's say two displays and one is showing just random go boards, 30 by 30 go and, or, or a smaller one, let's say tic-tac-toe board. And the other one is uh, the same board, but it's being played by experts. And they're, we know they're different, right? We know these two cases are totally different. And we know, we might think that if we could, at least with a simpler game, if we watch it long enough, we could figure it out. But we don't know that at first. Right. So you have a, you have a model that tries to predict the next move in the game. Like, just tries to predict the next input to the agent, what it's going to see next. Um, and, then, and then you need multiple models so that you can get an idea of multiple hypotheses of the, the rules of the environment. And you, you try to learn the rules of the environment by having a model that from one go position uh, or image of a go position predicts the next image of a go position. And, and so to get uncertainty about your, to do exploration um, you need some way of representing your uncertainty, either explicitly um, or any other algorithm will do it in, in some implicit form. So one way to do that is to train multiple environment models. And so then you get an idea of, well, if they are all the same, then I'm, I'm quite certain about what the next outcome is going to be. If they are all different, I probably have not that, much, not that good of an idea. So if you train these in both scenarios for the random go-board and for, for the expert go-board, then in the random go-board, um, the dynamics models, in, in the beginning, they are initialized differently, so they will predict different things. So your agent will go there for a while. 
And then over time, um, all of the models will just learn to predict the mean and maybe the variance of the next image. And so the mean image or the, the mean, the average over the next moves is, is going to be uniform probably. So if, if it's in pixel space, if you're actually looking at the GoBot, it would be basically, um, you know, the stones that are already there, they will stay there and all the other, um, all the other empty fields, they will have an equal chance of, uh, of getting the next stone. So they will all be like a little bit darker, a little bit uh, lighter based on uh, what player is next. And so um, if there is nothing to predict, if, if there were something to predict about the next move, then, you know, there would be some fields that are clearly still empty and some fields that have some chance of the stone ending up there. And, and if you have multiple predictors, then they can all predict this average image. But in, in, in case of the random uh, policy, or in case of the random bot, after a while, they will all predict the exact next um, kind of uniform distribution of our possibilities. And so if they all predict the uniform distribution of our next possibilities, you know that, first of all, your models all agree. They all predict the uniform distribution. So probably the next move is actually uniform. Um, and then you know that there is there is nothing more to learn because your, your ensemble members have agreed. Uh, or agree, even though they are not certain in what the next outcome is. Whereas in the next move, and um, it will get, it will take much longer for them to agree on what the next move is going to be, and they will only agree by the time that they've ex actually like perfectly reverse engineered um, the the expert players to the degree that the model allows them to. Can you tell us a bit about the process of of writing uh, these papers? Uh, like, for example, did the experiments in general work? Do experiments work out often? How's it, how you expected them to? Um, are there often dead ends that are reflected in the final papers? The experiments rarely work out the way you want them to work out. So you need to run a lot of experiments, and. I also want to be very confident in my own algorithm when I write about it um, because it, for one, it takes some time and effort to write a paper. Um, and that's time where you can't do research. And so I only want to do that if I have a result that's, um, that I'm happy enough with that I'm, I'm willing to spend all this time for writing the paper and then writing rebuttals for the conference. And then you have to do poster and maybe a talk or so and so on. And if you're not really, if you don't really believe in the method, then all of these steps are painful. So I don't want to do that. Um, and I'm, I, I didn't think that way before grad school because before grad school, you kind of, you just need to get a paper so you get into a PhD program. But once you're in a PhD program, you have several years and you can think much more long-term um, and much more actually follow, follow your interests. So I want to be sure that I have something that, um, that I also believe in. And so that just takes a long time and you have to like run a lot of experiments, um, 
whatever problem you're studying in the paper, either world modeling or exploration and so on, um, there's usually a big design space of ideas you can explore. And I want to kind of, as much as possible, strategically break down this space and test out all these ideas, get an understanding of which of them are better or worse or what better in some situation but worse in another and why. And it's not always easy because, for example, we didn't do that much of that for Planet, for example, just because we tried a lot of things and they, they all just didn't work at all. Um, but I think it would actually be interesting to go back and try out, um, like try to really understand why, for example, the stochastic and deterministic state uh, separation seemed to be so important. So, so there's a lot of tuning necessary and it takes a long time. And I think it's worth putting in that time and it's better to have one paper a year that you're really happy with than four papers that nobody, um, that don't really help anybody. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that was great. Cool. So do you have any comments on what you think the, the future of world models looks like? Yeah. So I think we still need to scale up a bit. Um, because reconstructing accurate images doesn't seem to be the solution, the long-term solution for representation learning, neither in, in model free RL nor in model based RL. So I think there are better ways of learning representations, learning latent states than by reconstructing images. Because if you think about it, there might be a lot of things in, in the image that the agent doesn't really care about. And there may also be a lot of things in the image that are just kind of really difficult to predict. And my experience so far is that if you can get reconstruction to work on an environment, then it does really well because you're basically solving a harder task than you have to. You're trying to predict like all your sensory inputs. If you can do that, then you know everything about the world there is. But if you can't, because it's the world is too complex to, to, to predict everything accurately in, in input space, then the agent tends to not learn a good representation. And so it's not like a kind of graceful failure. And I think contrastive representation learning is really interesting. There are a couple of, um, a couple of very successful, empirically successful methods for uh, static images that I think we can apply to... Uh, to video sequences for RL, and so we're trying some of that. Another aspect that I think a lot of RL is still kind of bottlenecked by is temporal abstraction. And I said earlier, value functions give you some, some of that because they let you consider rewards into the long-term future. But in a really complex environment, I think it will become intractable to learn a good value function for everything. And you probably need to do some kind of online planning just because there are too many possible scenarios that you could imagine to really uh, be able to learn about all of them. And so what you want to do is um, learn, like do the planning online so you only have to do it for the situations that you actually encounter. And to then still consider long horizons, you need to have temporal abstraction in your world model. So that's another thing we're trying. Um, 
And then besides that, I think we, I mean, there is a lot of, there's a, a big open space for, for objective functions that are enabled through learning accurate world models. And some of them will benefit from having uncertainty estimates uh, that are more accurate than maybe ensembles um, about parts of the world model. So you can explore better. Um, empowerment is another interesting objective function that we're studying that um, becomes much easier to compute once you have a world model. Um, yeah. So in summary, it's scaling up, um, learning better representations, and and finding better objective functions because eventually exploration will become really important as well to learn a good world model. So back at the NeurIPS 2019 uh, RL workshop poster sessions, I was at uh, David Silver's poster for MuZero, and I asked him about how MuZero handled stochasticity, uh, and he told me that it, it didn't. It used a deterministic model, uh, but but that he but he said it could be extended to to handle stochastic case. And I think I think MuZero builds on the Predictron. Um, paper which all which does some kind of temporal uh, abstraction so maybe there's progress being made in that in the temporal abstraction side yeah i'm i'm actually not sure if the original predictron has temporal abstraction in it um but yeah so i think for the stochasticity aspect it may be more necessary when you're trying to explain more complex data. So if you're trying to explain your inputs, uh, stochasticity becomes more important than if you're just trying to explain future rewards. That, that's my guess. Um, yeah. Also, you have to learn a lot more, of course, if, you, if you're trying to model the world rather than the task. And, and, but the, the result is that you get a model that can be useful for a lot of different tasks. Um, and that can be useful for exploration where you don't have a task at all. Um, but there, I mean, there are some, there are some recent papers on doing temporal abstraction and some old ones as well, both in model-free and model-based RL. Um, it's just that, and I think there are lots of great ideas, and a lot of these ideas can probably... Uh, my, my guess is that we don't have to invent like a crazy fancy method for like almost everything in machine learning. But we just have to take like a reasonable kind of something that seems intuitively correct and then push it, push it until it either works or we find a reason for why it doesn't work. And that hasn't really happened for temporal abstraction yet in RL. Can you say anything about uh, the research directions that, that you are pursuing going forward? Yeah, I, I mean, that overlaps a lot with your with what I said for um, in response to your question about next steps for uh, world models. But yeah, for me, I'm I'm trying to systematically go through different objective functions for intrinsic motivation now, and. Besides that, we also want to work on harder tasks. So I need to scale up world models further so that we can do, um, let's say, 
train train like an agent with only with an intrinsic motivation uh, to play Minecraft from pixels. That would be great. <laughs> awesome. And, and it builds your... a house and it survives and maybe fights the monsters and at night and you know because there's such a complexity and kind of um, there there are there are so many things you can do because it's not a a lot of games are actually more easier to explore than you might think. Um, for example, in Mario, you can only walk forward, um, so it's not that difficult to explain uh, to to explore. It's basically either you're uh, you're making progress, you go forward, or you don't. But in an open world game, there are so many things you can do, and then you have to then you get an additional challenge because once you've explored something, you kind of have to go back and, and see, is there something else that I could have also tried from here? And, and so that, that's why um, I like thinking about uh, training and doing intrinsic motivation in Minecraft because, you know, you have to uh, build tools and then use these tools to get better materials and then you can build better tools and then you can, you know, um, build more like, like, um, bring yourself into like a better um, into a better state for surviving and so if an agent can actually do all these things then it must be a very general uh, very general objective function that that can explain all this besides your own work uh, is there other angles in RL that you find uh, very interesting lately that, that you might not have mentioned yeah, there's one that I've been thinking about a bit, but not really, not done anything in, which is um, external memory for to give agents long-term memory. Because I think temporal abstraction is just one part of the puzzle. Um, you do want to plan into the future on a temporally abstract level, um, but and that gives you a long context into the to, from the past as well um, but I think you can't keep everything in memory in your working memory at a time and so it, it's very natural to think that there could be this external memory module that you can write things into and then you can later query it to get back the facts that you need at the moment so there yeah there are a couple of interesting uh, interesting papers on training these modules for RL and another direction that's not directly reinforcement learning is um, is the like brain inspired architectures. So I think it would be cool to to develop an unsupervised learning algorithm that works in an online setting on high-dimensional inputs. So it can't really do backprop through time. It has to find some other way. Uh, because it keeps getting new new input, so I think we have to be cool to kind of go away from the static image setting into the online streaming setting for representation learning, and potentially explore ideas people like just kind of the very basic ideas that people know about computation in the brain, which is like sparse distributed representations, um, hierarchies, and so on. 
Danager Hafner. Uh, it's been a real treat, and thanks for taking um, this time and, and and your patience to to teach us so much. Actually, I've learned so much in this episode. I'm going to listen to it uh, many times, and um, it's been great hearing about your fascinating research. I can't wait to hear or read about what you come up with next. Thanks for sharing your time and, and your insight with us, Danajar. Thanks, Robin. Uh, that was, uh, was a great chat, and looking forward to hearing the episode. That's our episode for today, folks. Be sure to check talkrl.com for more great episodes. 